Thank you for being here this, this evening to study with us. We want to, uh, hopefully the study this evening will help us as a congregation to look at another congregation that is listed in the Bible that can help us to grow and to be more like Jesus, and that's what the goal is, isn't it? It's to be more like Him. Uh, I've entitled this lesson, The Common to Exemplary. And I've got a picture there of an old chunk of coal. There was a country music singer a few years back in my part of the country that said, I'm just an old chunk of coal, but I'm going to be a diamond someday. We look at a diamond and that becomes the standard, doesn't it, of jewelry. Uh, I guarantee you that if I brought in two little bitty chunks of coal that was, had a clasp, Robin wouldn't put them in her ear. But if I brought her a couple of diamonds, she would. And even though they come from the same carbon material and the process, uh, over-process, then this diamond changes from this coal. But she wouldn't want the coal in her ears. After all, that's something that's just dirty and nasty and, and uh, it's not good for much except to keep you warm. But the diamond, that's exemplary. That's pretty nice. And just about everybody likes the diamond. I'd like to talk to you about a church that we read about in the New Testament in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, that started out very common as most churches do. After all, as individuals, don't we start out very common? I'm still just an old chunk of coal myself, <laughs> but I'm not as dirty as I used to be. God's cleaning me up, and he's making me and leading me down a road that I'm going to be an example to other people eventually, the kind of example he wants me to be. That's the goal. That's what Paul was talking about, that we could be conformed to the image of his son. And God predetermined those things. He predetermined his plan that you and I can become like Jesus Christ. And we see the church as a whole, as a group, that's going down the same process. After all, the church is made up of individuals. The church is made up of families. And we're all at different levels of development, different levels of growth. But eventually, this congregation, if you're not already, your goal is to become exemplary. And I don't mean exemplary, meaning that you think you're better than anybody else. <laughs> not at all. Not in a prideful manner, but to become an example to other churches. And perhaps you know congregations like that, and I believe that you're on that path. And I believe that our congregation in McMinnville, Tennessee is on that path. How does that happen? What's the growth process in that? Let's read about the beginning, if you will, of this church in Thessalonica. It's found in Acts 17, beginning with verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming their way, who come thither, excuse me, went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, 
They came thither also and stirred up the people. This chapter details the beginning of the church at Thessalonica. We see in the early part of this chapter that Paul passes through Amphipolis into Apollonia. There he stayed and he reasoned with these Jews three Sabbath days. Some believed. Some attached themselves with Paul and Silas. However, there was a group of Jews in this city, in these two cities, in this region, that formed a band of men. Now, the Bible calls them men that were a baser sort. Now, we don't use language like that in modern English, but uh, uh, for you young people, what that means is they were, they were rough men. <laughs> they were men of the baser sort. They were primitive type men. We might think of them as Neanderthals. Rough. And these Jews took these men and they stirred these men up so that they could go and they could persecute the believers that the Apostle Paul had reasoned with. So Paul and Silas, according to the scripture there, vacate the city by night and go into Berea. And we read there in our passage that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word of God with readiness. Here's a contrast. A populace of people in Thessalonica through the region of Amphipolis and Apollonia, there they, they are uh, rejecting the word of God as a whole, especially the Jews. But the Bereans, they're receiving it. So here we find the true definition of nobility in God's eyes. And we see that these Bereans were more noble than this group in Thessalonica. Verse 13 says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge of the word of God, was preached uh, a Paul at Berea, they came hither also and stirred up the people. So, these same group of Jews that's wanting to cause all of the problems because of the believers, even when they go to Berea, they try to stir them up and try to persecute them. Let's do a SWOT analysis. You know, you guys know what SWOT analysis, right? We do this with churches. I've been involved in several in the Southeast. You always want to go through the strength, the weaknesses, and the opportunities, and the threats. It's a good idea. After all, we need to identify these things. Now, if we were starting a church in Thessalonica, of what information we've read, how would we analyze our strengths? Now, it may come of some surprise to you, but they did have some. It doesn't appear that they've got a great deal, but one of the things is they had the truth. They had attached themselves to the Apostle Paul. They had attached themselves to the truth. They had some members. There was a group that did, us, did accept this truth. And the Bible points out there's honorable women. And, and, and that's a strength. What a wonderful strength it is. Uh, you might... Uh, call them, you know, mighty women, strong women, honorable women. That's what they started the church with. What about their weakness? 
Well, they had inexperience. That's always hard. But you can overcome inexperience. You know how you overcome inexperience? Don't give up. (laughs) Everybody starts out inexperienced at one time or another in their life. Whatever they're doing. And for the young members here of this church, don't let the inexperience daunt you and intimidate you that you have. You can overcome that. One of the other major problems that they had was that they were in the minority of people. And that became real obvious to them very quickly. What about their opportunities? Well, I, I, you know, I couldn't think of anything uh, specifically other than this, is there's no way to go except up. <laughs> and sometimes when we get on the bottom, then there, we don't look down, we look up, because there's no place to go but up. And here's a church that's starting with no place to go but up. Now, I venture to say that the church here at Amarillo, if you did a SWOT analysis of this congregation, you're going to find different details than these. Some will be similar. But you're going to start listing opportunities that you have. And you're going to start thinking about connections. And you're going to start thinking about all of those things that are possibilities for this church and for the growth of this church. I know that because I've listened to you talk. And I've already listened to the opportunity that you see that we can knock out this wall and we can get a bigger auditorium and (laughs) on and on and on. And we're going to fill this place up. You can. Here's where we differ in the church at Thessalonica. The threats. And this, what ma- this is what makes the church at Thessalonica stand out to me. Because you and I cannot comprehend hardly, I don't believe, starting a church under these circumstances. They had the threats of the Jews. To the point that these Jews would assemble a rough group of men and try to persecute them and stir up the people and to debate them and to to go against them even to the point of physical violence. And then they had the government that was opposed to them. They had all of the physical persecution that was opposed to them. I'll tell you, it would be hard to get out and try to start a church if you thought that you was going to get whipped over it. Now, I know that that's happened many times, and I know that this happened with the church at Thessalonica. So the next time that you think that we, uh, you're getting too comfortable and you think that uh, somebody's not doing their job in the church, think about this church under the conditions that they started. You know, every local congregation starts with a handful of people generally. I don't know how many people was in the beginning of this congregation. Back home, it was about 15 of us. And we all face threats, and we all face opportunities, and we all face weaknesses, and we all face all of these things. But when you look at the church at Thessalonica, you'd have to say that their start was a rocky start. How much success would you give them, or chances of success? 
Now, we've got a whole book that's where the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. And you and I know the outcome of that church. And we're going to talk a little bit about it tonight. This outcome of the church at Thessalonica. Because you see, their, their start is an old chunk of coal. They didn't stay there. And even in the midst of all this hardship and all of this trouble and turmoil, they didn't stay an old chunk of coal. They became an example to many, many churches, including us. So our goal is to become exemplary in the kingdom of God. We need every one of us as individuals to think of ourselves as an example, especially parents. And I say especially parents because you have the most opportunity than anyone with your children. And they're going to look at you over and above everybody else. And you are going to be their example of either good or bad. Our goal as a church is to become examples. Examples to what? Examples to the world. Examples to the community. Examples to other congregations. I'll tell you, when the church at North Warren in McMinnville, Tennessee, hears of the church at Amarillo and the success of the church at Amarillo and conversion of souls, it means something to us. It is heartening to us. We need examples in our life. 1 Timothy 4 and 12 says, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. The Apostle Paul understood his role as that he becomes an example to other Christians. And you and I follow the example of the Apostle Paul today. You realize that our practice as a congregation hinges upon the examples of the early churches. And our interpretation of the scripture will involve an example that has been set forth to us. That's how important it is for us to be an example, to become exemplary in our congregations. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus and to the church at Thessalonians which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Look at the change. A growth has happened in Thessalonica among the Thessalonians. Now Paul writes a letter and he says, boy, I'm sure thankful for you. And I give thanks for you and all the things that you're doing. And I make mention of you always in my prayers, he says. Now notice, he says this. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. 
so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had into you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You talk about a weakness that these brethren faced. And they turned from it. Paul acknowledges this and he applauds them for this. Verse 10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's look at these three attributes of excellence, if you will, that the Apostle Paul mentions that he saw in the church at Thessalonica, from them becoming this old chunk of coal to a diamond, to becoming an example to all those that were round about. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Your work of faith. We've said uh, a couple of three times, I guess, this week, faith is better seen than told. Paul saw the faith that came out of the church at Thessalonica. I want to tell you, people see the faith that comes out of these walls and into the world that you're carrying forth. And they see it if it's not there also. Mark 2, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says when he saw their faith, the scripture says there, faith can be seen. Our faith has to be demonstrated in the world. Faith is just not a confidence. It's not just idle words. It's a demonstration of the power of God. And this is the case with the church at Thessalonica. And we're called to be doers of the word. I believe, brethren, that the church at Thessalonica grew and flourished in the kingdom of God because they became a doer of the word. And being a doer, then, they become examples to other people. We look at the heroes of faith. And you see Moses, a man that was once fleeing in fear to being a deliverer of Israel. It's a work of faith. You see Joseph, a man from imprisonment to the prime minister of Egypt, and you see his work of faith. It's a demonstration. It's a demonstration of the power of God. These prophets of old, the scripture says that the world was not even worthy, but yet they show us how to live and how to be an example. Paul says the church at Thessalonica was the same way. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. The Thessalonians' work of faith is stated in this passage. Verse 5, it says, the gospel came. Understand this. The gospel came. But coming is not just the work of faith, but yet demonstration of it is followed in verse 6. Then you became followers, the scripture says, and you received the word. It's a work of faith. Then you became examples. The word was sounded out. All of this is a process, if you will, of the work of faith of a church. My encouragement for us tonight is for us to take this same work of faith. As an individual, the gospel will come to you. It's come every time that someone steps in this pulpit, they preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. You are bound, if you are going to accept this work of faith, 
to receive it and to become followers of Christ. And then to become an example. Not just in word, but in doing. In the way you live. And part of this example is that the word is sounded out. We remind uh, people back home, uh, those guys that are teaching, that our work just begins when we walk out the door. I want, I want to remind you of that this evening. This is the mission field. It's outside these doors. Here we are on a midweek service, primarily church members here, I'm sure, and members of this congregation. My question to you this evening is what kind of work of faith are you experiencing in your own personal life and as a congregation? The word was sounded out by the church at Thessalonica. I believe it behooves us, brethren, that the word be sounded out from the church at Amarillo. Let's notice some attributes of the work of faith. And I'd like for you to think about these things. Think about these things in light of obedience to the gospel, and we'll use that as an example. For you see, I believe obedience to the gospel is a work of faith. The work of faith never elevates the flesh. When the church at Thessalonica had this work of faith, they were not elevating themselves. Many people want to uh, and misunderstand a work of faith entirely and think that if we build great monuments to the Lord, then we are elevating Him when in fact we're elevating ourselves work of faith never elevates the flesh. A work of faith always elevates Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, as King. That behooves us then that we examine our own actions in our life as to why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I conducting myself after the manner that I'm, I'm living? Am I concerned about the elevation of the flesh? If so, it's not a work of faith. The Pharisees were more concerned about what men said about them than what men said about God. If we are pleasing to God, that's really all that matters, isn't it? The work of faith is concerned about pleasing God and never elevates the flesh. Secondly, a work of faith has no apparent connection to the thing commanded and the desired goal. Many examples of this I'd like to illustrate for you. First of all, baptism. And the world that does not understand a work of faith constantly going to say, well, <laughs> getting wet? What's that going to do? Water's never saved anybody, right? No apparent connection. No apparent connection. But because it never elevates the flesh, and baptism becomes this purely passive act that is not only elevates, the, never elevates the flesh, but it lowers the flesh to the point that says, I'm dying. 
And I'm being buried and I'm being raised again in a new life. And the elevation becomes to God. And this passive act has no apparent connection to the thing that's offered except for the fact that God commands it. Same is true in so many actions of faith, in the work of faith. Think about them marching around those, that city of Jericho blowing on those ram's horns. You know they had to look ridiculous. <laughs> March around every day and toot on a ram's horn. What sense does that make? No apparent connection whatsoever to the thing desired. But the thing desired, had to, it had to happen through a work of faith in order for the walls of Jericho to fall down. The same is true with our baptism and our submission to God. If you are concerned about elevating the flesh and elevating your own stature in life to gain the respect of other people, then you have lost the idea that God is trying to give us of this work of faith. Thirdly, the work of faith, the work has to be as precisely commanded. Precisely. There was no, uh, if you will, wiggle room for blowing on the ram's horns. There was no wiggle room for building the ark. Because it's a work of faith. And when we start trying to find easements in obedience to God, then we are failing in the work of faith. Now let's apply this to the work of this church. Let's apply all of these things to the work of this congregation in this community on a day-in and day-out basis. Number one, let's ask the question, who are we elevating? Are we glorifying God? Or are we trying to glorify ourselves? I heard a man not too long ago, and I almost passed out when he said this because I knew that he knew better. But I'm going to share this with you because it's so unbelievable. It is to me. But he said, my church has always represented me real well. Think about that a minute. My church has always represented me real well. I thought we were supposed to represent Christ. I thought we were the ambassadors of Christ. Modern denominationalism and modern... and, and I'm sorry to have to use that term, but, but, but it's, it's a terrible term, modern denominationalism. But modern thought or progressive thought, let's put it that way. You like that better. Progressive thought has now declared that for us, in order to be happy in our spiritual life, that the church must satisfy us. And it's an elevation of the flesh. 
when the church at Thessalonica began, if they had had that idea that this church needs to represent our families and they need to hold me up as to be a chief man in the community and make me have some prestige and esteem, Paul would have never written this letter and remembered their work of faith because a work of faith never elevates the flesh. And are we completing precisely the commands that God has given us? We need to be concerned about that. Paul says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. The second element of excellence in this is a labor of love. What is a labor of love? Now, for a lot of people, a labor of love is to do, is to do what you love to do. I had one fellow tell me that he thought that evangelism was a whole lot like his deer hunting. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. He told me that. I told him, I said, well, I don't like to deer hunt, but if I was hungry, I'd learn how. Labor of love. Having received the word in much affliction with joy, the Holy Ghost, the scripture says in verse 6 to the Thessalonians. Much affliction with joy. They had a labor of love. Notice in Acts 5 verse 41, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Elevation of Christ, never an elevation of the flesh. Right there to me is a labor of love. It's a woman rocking a crying baby. Now, if the, the women who have had crying babies, my wife had one. Our first one cried for six years. <laughs> and when she was just a baby, sure enough, she'd get up and she, Robin would rock her and rock her. And some, I, I preached this sermon someplace. She said, why didn't you help rock her? I said, well, she'd cry louder if I rocked her. She wanted that mother's touch. And I did rock some. But Robin took the burden of that labor of love. Do you think she enjoyed the rocking at 2 o'clock in the morning? 3 o'clock in the morning? 4 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> you think she enjoyed that? I want to tell you, she did not enjoy that. She became exhausted so many occasions. And there's so many mothers out here that I'm talking to this evening could relate to that. But I'll tell you what you did love and what she loved. She loved the baby. And so she'd rock, and she'd tend to her baby. She'd cry, and she'd still rock. And her patience would go on and on and on. That's not to say she, Robin never got frustrated. She did. But eventually that six years came and passed. <laughs> and Stacy quit crying. And Robin remembers affectionately that labor of love. 
How does that, what does that uh, uh, apply to the church? Let's look at some attributes of this second exemplary example. You see a need. It's a labor of love. You see, if I don't see a need, then I'll never have this labor of love. Now we'll go to the crying baby. What's the need? The need is for that baby to be nurtured and to be loved and to be encouraged so that this baby can go to sleep, mama can go to sleep. But it's not just for the mother's sleep, it's more for the baby, isn't it? And for the care of that child. Secondly, to see the hopelessness if the need is not met. Now, eventually, this baby's going to cry in a mother's mind <laughs> until they just get deathly sick. I don't know if crying has ever made a child deathly sick, but boy, you sure feel like it. And you feel like that's what's going to happen. So the need has to be met. Brethren, we have to see these two things in the work of this church and in our own personal work. We have to hear a personal call to action. Mark 16, 16, the, the very last words that Jesus stated before his ascension into heaven and the last things that he said to his apostles, those closest to him, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. So, well, that's a, that's a call to the apostles. I want to tell you, unless you can see a need and see the hopelessness if the need is not met, and then take that as a personal call to action. The old boy that likes to deer hunt, he does it for fun. But if you take my position on it, I'm going to do it if my family gets hungry. And then this deer hunting becomes a labor to me because I can't stand it, quite frankly. It never made a lot of sense to me. But if it meant the feeding of my family, I'm going to shoot a deer. And I'm going to provide for my family. So many people today look and they never see the need. And they never see the hopelessness. And they never have this labor of love when it comes to their family, to other people. The church at Thessalonica saw this labor of love and had this labor of love. And even though this great persecution existed, it did not stop them. I want to ask you the question tonight, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? Do you have a labor of love? A labor of love means that you're going to do something not because you enjoy doing it, but because you love the results of that. And the results of preaching the gospel is rescuing and bringing people to Jesus Christ where he can be elevated as Lord and Savior and not the flesh. And the labor of love will cause you to do it. Some of you are here tonight because of a labor of love. I believe that. 
I believe that. You're here out of conviction, out of necessity. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think that's good. Because you love the results of it. Here in the middle of the week, when everything else in the world is concerned about the flesh and the worldly things of this world, tonight you and I are listening and thinking and reading about a church long ago that would do what they had to do because they loved the people and loved the results. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. And thirdly, patience of hope. What is patience of hope? 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Patience of hope is simply this, faithfulness. I have a tendency not to have patience in certain things. Uh, we plant a big garden every year. And, and you can, this is the truth. I have to fight this urge when I plant a garden. It's to go out and dig and see if it's coming up. <laughs> and I know that if I go out and I start digging, it's not going to come up. But I have to fight that urge because I get so excited about these vegetables coming up that Robin can cook some good vegetables. But I have to be faithful. I have to be faithful in what I planted. What does that mean? It means that I have to be willing to allow the seed to sprout for the wheat, for the for the for the uh, seed to come up and start growing so I can tend to it. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Being found faithful means that I have the ability to persevere even in the midst of trouble and, and turmoil. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Trust the Apostle Paul who was speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says, whatever work you're doing for God, something good will come from it. Trust that. Just as surely as you trust it if you plant a seed in the ground. Trust it that I've done something and God is going to bless this. But I have to remain faithful. For me to remain faithful means that I have to keep planting the seed. And I have to be patient in what I planted. Our biggest danger is quitting. I've seen a lot of people quit. More than I care to mention. We start a race. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says, Know ye not that which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. The patience of hope that was existent in the church at Thessalonica was what they had begun as a congregation they would continue in. We have to continue. You and I don't know exactly how far that finish line is away from us. I don't know. The finish line could be a few breaths away from us. At any time. Why, how could I quit? 
how can I stop this race? And what hope is there is if I do stop it? To whom shall we go? The scripture says. We run that we may obtain. James 5 and 7 says, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Somebody says you learn, you learn patience when you go to a doctor's office. Not necessarily so. <laughs> You're forced to wait, but that's not necessarily patience. What is patience in that is that you're not going to get up and walk out. <laughs> that you're willing to endure until you get the desired prize. That's the patience that's involved. You're forced to wait, just like the husbandman is forced to wait. I can't go out and dig up my garden and have anything. <laughs> I'm forced to wait. The same is true, brethren, with our life and with the work of the church. We don't quit. We continue. Verse 9 says, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience, endurance. Behold, we count them happy which endure, You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Tonight I leave you with these questions. Is our work a work of faith? Who are we elevating? Are we glorifying God? Our work here, our work at other churches, other communities, it has to elevate God, has to elevate Jesus Christ. Is our work a labor of love? Are we working because we enjoy the work or are we working because we enjoy and love the people and love the results? And will we continue? The exhortation for you tonight is to continue. Endure all the way to the end. If you're here this evening and we can help you in any way, to live a better Christian life if you need prayer, if you need Christ and you've never obeyed the gospel, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing.